And we are going to look at one of the most classic stories that has ever been told in the Bible, which is David and Goliath. And most of you have heard this story maybe several dozens of times since you were little, but we're going to look at it hopefully in a fresh way as we see the Old Testament stories through a New Testament lens. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15 to 17, and it's going to be a lot of text. We're not going to read every part of it, but we are going to read a lot of it because it's important. So 1 Samuel 15 to 17, if you have your Bibles, please join me there. But before we get to the text, did you ever have to do something that took confidence? Did you ever have to do something that took confidence? Many of you remember uh, the story I've told about when we found out we were having identical twin boys and our life changed completely from that point on. Maybe one detail of the story that I haven't told you is that when Janine got pregnant with these twins, ever since the doctor found out, he kept telling us that we were going to have to watch these twins closely because twins are high risk for complications. And so he said, we're just going to have to watch them closely, make sure one twin isn't stealing all the food, make sure they're growing well enough, and we'll just keep an extra eye on them. So he did, kept looking at the ultrasound, kept telling us how they're doing. And about 26 weeks, if you know anything about pregnancy, it goes to about 40 weeks, about 26 weeks along, uh, the doctor came and said, uh, there's some complications and we think your wife needs to go on something called bed rest. And this is... This is interesting. I'm telling you this story for a couple of reasons, because I think it pertains to what we're talking about today. And second of all, because it was in our Facebook memories from about, uh, let's see, six years ago. And so we were looking at this, we were reminiscing about that time. And, and so the doctor told us at about 26 weeks that Janine had to go on bed rest because the twins were in danger of being born uh, prematurely, in fact, dangerously prematurely. So Janine was going to have to go on bed rest for as long as possible to try to keep those twins in, inside of her as long as possible because no matter the modern technology and science we have, the best place for a baby to grow is still within inside the mother's womb. And so I remember hearing that news and going, well, what does that mean if my wife goes on bed rest? Because I was leading a campus ministry and we had just planted a church in Michigan and now I'm finding out that my wife is going to be out of commission for several weeks. And so basically what the doctor said is he said, you're going to have to treat this like, a, like it's a really bad flu and she's not going to be able to get out of bed and hardly do anything because we have to make sure these twins stay inside of her. So that meant that I was going to become the dad and the mom for several weeks. And I was nervous by that. I remember hearing that news. And I've heard people say to me before, I don't know how you do public speaking because public speaking is like one of the biggest, most terrifying fears people have. And I'm not fearful by public speaking, but when I heard that I was going to be the dad and the mom for several weeks, I was terrified. I was very nervous by hearing that because I think I'm a pretty good dad. I pride myself in being a good dad, but I found out through this process, I'm a really bad mom. And uh, Janine wasn't going to be able to do much. She was going to do as much as she could while being safe, but I was going to be doing most of all things. And so diapers, I was going to be doing all the diapers. I had done my share. <laughs> But I hadn't done all the diapers. Generally, when the, the baby went number two, I passed him off to mom and said, you do that one. <laughs> but I was going to be doing all the diapers. I was going to be changing all the clothes. I remember one time I put Haddon in one of those things called a onesie. And uh, we only had one child. I should mention that. We had one child before the twins came. So I was taking care of Haddon by myself. And Haddon was wearing these things called onesies. And I, I, I knew what onesies were. But Janine came back once and found the onesie that it was um, un unbuttoned. And he was just kind of flowing. <laughs> I didn't button it up. I pulled his pants up and the onesie was unbuttoned. And so I made a lot of mistakes that way. And I was making meals. I was doing bath times. I was doing all the bedtimes and the bedtime routines. There were a lot of dad stories. 
Uh, there was a lot of bad singing as we put Haddon to sleep. And if Haddon needs psychiatric care someday, that's probably why. Um, but I was doing all the errands. I was doing laundry and dishes. And you know what I realized during that process? Moms do a lot. Wow. And I'm thankful for my wife that takes care of our children even now. And I'm thankful for my mom and all moms out there for what you do. But I remember during this time needing confidence. And that's the point of the story because I had to wake up every single day and I had to take on so much more responsibility, responsibility that I wasn't used to doing. And I remember being nervous, nervous that I was going to make a mistake, nervous that I was going to feed the child something wrong, nervous that I wasn't going to do something I should. And it took a great amount of confidence. And I remember uh, praying to the Lord a lot during that time, asking that he'd give me the strength to do that. But did you ever have to do something that took confidence? We're going to look at one of those stories today that took an immense amount of confidence. And we're going to call our tale today, Standing Confident against giants, standing confident against giants. David and Goliath, that's the story we want to share today. It's one of the most classic stories of all times. In fact, if you're a sports fan, you hear David and Goliath mentioned a lot as a reference. Whenever there's a big school or a big team playing a smaller school, they always call it, it's like a David and Goliath story. And Actually, around this time is what, uh, even though it was canceled, it was right, right around the time of March Madness. And that comes up a lot during March Madness because there's a lot of these smaller schools playing big schools like Duke, and sometimes they beat them, and it's like, oh, David beat Goliath. So this story we're looking at today transcends the Bible. Most of culture, most of our modern culture knows this story, at least to some degree. And we want to share this story again because it's such a great story and it has so much for us. But like I said before, we want to share it from a New Testament light And so we need to begin this story with a little bit of background, and that's why we're including chapter 15 and 16 of 1 Samuel, because we need to understand how this was set up. You see, David was going to be chosen by God to be king, but it's what we're going to find out in verse, excuse me, chapter 15 and 16 is that David was not the obvious choice. He wasn't really on anyone's radar except God's radar. In fact, you could say this, David wasn't even God's first option. So what I want you to do is go to 1 Samuel 15, and I want to read the first 23 verses of 1 Samuel 15. And I want you to listen to the word of God. This is a really important tale. We're going to pick up the reading in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 15. It said, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when, you came, when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. 
I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Verse 22, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The story goes on, and we're going to sort of recap what's happening here in, in chapter 15. But did you ever think that you had a better plan than God? Honestly, did you ever think you had a better plan than God's plan for you? I remember the time that I thought telemarketing was my destiny. <laughs> and I chased telemarketing thinking it was a really good plan. It was going to be a really good job for me, only to find out that God's plan was not for telemarketing and me. And uh, I had to realize that God's plan was better than mine. Aren't you thankful that God has a plan that's better than yours? But you see what's happening here is in chapter 15, Saul is given a clear and direct commandment from the Lord to utterly destroy the Amalekites and everything that belonged to them. But Saul had a better idea. He said he listened to the people. He was not going to destroy the best of the spoil, the sheep, the ox, and the fatted calves. Instead, he was going to keep those alive and sacrifice them to the Lord. And he kept their king, Agag, alive. And this greatly angered the Lord because the commandment was given to Saul. It was clear, it was direct, and Saul was chosen by God to be the king of Israel, the king of his people. The bar was high for Saul, and Saul utterly failed the test that God gave them, gave him. So when Saul was confronted by the prophet Samuel about what he did, Saul tries to justify his deeds by saying that he kept the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves alive to use them as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Isn't that interesting? I've used this illustration before, but I want you to imagine if your mom, when you were little, told you to clean your bedroom. 
she was going to go to the store and she wanted you to clean your bedroom because your bedroom was atrocious. It was a mess and she wanted you to clean it up. And she was going to go to the store and when she came back, she wanted to find out that your room had been clean. But while she was gone, you decided that you didn't want to clean your room, but you did want to let your mom know that you cared for her. So you sat down and you wrote a love note to your mom, telling her all the great things about her, how nice she is, what a great mom she is, and you set it up nice on the kitchen table so that when she came back with the groceries, she would see it straight away. And so your mom comes back and she reads the note and she's all touched for a moment until she goes down to your bedroom and finds your bedroom completely disregarded. That's kind of what we're dealing with, with here with Saul. Saul is given a clear and direct commandment from the Lord. And Saul disregards the commandment because he believes that to sacrifice these animals unto the Lord is better than God's plan of destroying these things. In other words, Saul's plan to sacrifice the animals was better than the plan of God to destroy everything. Did you ever think you just might know better than God? Has that ever rattled around your brain that maybe, possibly, I know better than God does at this time? Maybe I should take that job. Maybe I should marry that person. Even though God doesn't seem like he's in it, I think I know better. So I'm going to do what I think is best instead of consulting my God. So Samuel has to jog Saul's memory and say to Saul in the bluntest of fashions that sacrifice is a poor substitute for obedience. Notice what he says in verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You see, the Lord desires obedience way more than he delights in sacrifice. Don't disobey the Lord's commandments. We need to learn that even from this chapter. Don't disobey the Lord's commandments and give him a love song instead. Give to the Lord exactly what he asks us for because the Lord knows best how to please him. We don't. The Lord knows best how to please him and we must listen and obey God's plan. So Saul does. He recognizes he was wrong and he confesses to being wrong And by doing that, I believe that Saul expected to make everything right again. He said, I was wrong. You're right. I should have obeyed. I should have killed and destroyed everything. I confess it. I was wrong. And I believe Saul thought he was going to make everything right. But Samuel had the unfortunate business of passing along to Saul that he was not going to be king of Israel, that God was testing Saul, and that Saul failed the test, and therefore his throne was going to be taken away from him. Because as we learn, timeless, excuse me, time after time is that sin has consequences, doesn't it? And Saul learned that very hard lesson here is that sin has consequences. And he was going to lose his throne because he failed the test that God gave him. What's also interesting is that Samuel has to do the unfortunate task of finishing Saul's mission for him. So if you keep reading in the, in the chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, he brings King Agag before him. And he murders him. He kills him. He destroys him before the Lord, as Saul was supposed to do. Because we understand this as well. God's will is going to be done either with us or in spite of us. And that's what happens with Saul. As Saul disregards the will of the Lord, but the will of the Lord is going to happen regardless of Saul's decision. And so King Agag, he was supposed to be destroyed, and he was. And Samuel had to finish the business there. 
This is a hard thing for us to understand. This is one of those Old Testament stories that's a little hard to understand. Going, why were these people destroyed? Why did it have to go this way? Why wasn't Saul right to have a little bit of mercy? But you see, the Amalekites were so wicked before the eyes of the Lord. And I want you to look at what Samuel says to King Agag before he kills him in verse 23. Excuse me, verse 33. He says to Agag, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. You see, the Amalekites were very cruel and very rude and very mean to the people of Israel. They had actually slaughtered some of their people, including their women and their children, and acted very mean and very cruel to these people as they were leaving Egypt to escape Egypt. And so God was fed up with the Amalekites and wanted them destroyed. But as we know, Saul spared them, including the king, and kept some of their oxen, some of their lambs, and decided to sacrifice them. And this explains why Saul was not going to be king of Israel and why Israel was still in need of a king. This is an interesting background we need to understand because Saul is not going to be king of Israel based on what transpired here. The Lord was going to anoint another man, a man that would one day be described as a man after God's own heart. And in chapter 16, if you'll join me there, Uh, David comes into the picture. We're going to read the first 13 verses of chapter 16. Listen to what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Interesting enough, it's Bethlehem, and I want you to notice that parallel, that he's going to find the king from Bethlehem. Do you notice the parallel? But he said, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And we're going to stop our reading there. And this is where David comes into the picture. Samuel, at the beginning of chapter 16, is acting like most of us would have acted if we were in that position. He's sad. 
over what transpires with Saul. He, saw, he thought Saul was going to be king of Israel. And now he had to be part of delivering the very hard news to Saul that he wasn't going to be king. And so he's grieving when chapter 16 opens up. But the Lord tells Samuel to stop grieving because his plan is not yet completed. Although Saul was not going to be king, Israel was still getting a king from God. And Samuel had to be the one to anoint this man. Because Saul does not get to mess up God's will, does he? Saul does not get to mess up the will of God. None of us do. If Israel was to have a king, Israel was going to get a king. But unfortunately, once again, Saul was going to miss out on being a a profound part of God's will. And it was going to go to someone else. So Samuel finds out from the Lord that the new new selected king is going to come from one of the sons of this man named Jesse the Bethlehemite. He's from Bethlehem. And Saul's concerned to go anywhere near the location of Saul because he had to be the messenger that told Saul that he's not going to be king. And he thought that if he goes near Saul, Saul might lash out and kill Samuel based on the news that he told him. But God tells Samuel to go and sacrifice a heifer unto the Lord and to bring this man Jesse along with him. So Samuel obeys the Lord and brings Jesse and a few others with him to the sacrifice. Jesse brings his son before Samuel as he's instructed. And as soon as Samuel sees the older one, Eliab, or Eliab, he's convinced by his stature and outward appearance that he has just found God's new king of Israel. But it's told to Samuel that God does not look at people the same way we look at people. God looks on the heart. And he says that in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, God doesn't cast Hollywood stars, does he? God takes humble servants. And you know why that is? It's because God is the star of every show. The Lord is the star of every show, not man. So man, God is not going to choose man like we would choose man. We would choose the prettiest and the tallest and the strongest and the smartest. But for God to get the glory, he's going to take the humble servants and do his will. And that's why Saul is rejected, because he's not humble and he's not a servant. But David is. And therefore, the new king wasn't going to be Eliab or any of Jesse's other sons that were there that day. And after finding out that Jesse has one other son, the youngest, and that he was currently tending sheep at the moment, Samuel tells Jesse to bring him before him. So Jesse obeys and he fetches David. And Samuel immediately anoints David with the horn of oil. And as soon as he does this, the text says that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that moment on. You see, David was already special. He was already a humble servant before the Lord. He had already found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But now he was going to be set apart as holy unto the Lord. He had God's favor, not Saul. So he was going to get all the tools from God that Saul would have got. And David was going to get them. The tale tells us that we didn't read. In the meantime, the spirit of the Lord is removed from Saul. And it's actually replaced with an evil spirit, which terrorizes Saul. To the point that Saul needs emotional and mental help. And if we learn another lesson, let's learn this lesson. Don't mess with God. And don't mess with God's plan. Saul, the spirit is taken away from Saul and it's given an evil spirit to allow to to torture Saul. And so Saul's in such a mess spiritually and emotionally and mentally that he actually needs help. And so one of his men suggests that he finds a skillful harp player 
to help calm his mind, and Saul likes this plan. So they're sent out to find the best harp player they can find, and guess who they find? They find the best harp player in the region, and it just happens to be David, the newly anointed king of Israel. He's going to be Saul's harp player because he's so skilled at the harp, among many other things. And see, at this time, Saul has no idea that David is the anointed king of Israel. So he thinks the world of David. He brings David into his chambers. David soothes Saul with his heart playing. And Saul can tell that the Lord is with him. That's interesting. So he actually, David finds tremendous favor in the eyes of Saul. And that's an ironic detail to be sure, isn't it? And maybe we can even notice a little bit of the humor there. That not only is Saul losing his throne, but he's going to lose it to his harp servant. Saul is going to lose his throne to the guy who plays the harp for him. And I tried to think of an illustration of this, but it would be like if we were casting a movie and we told Brad Pitt, yeah, we were going to cast you, Brad Pitt, but no longer. We're going to actually give the role to Kenny G, the sax player. We think he's going to do a better job than you. And that's really what's going to transpire to Saul is he's going to find out that he's going to be replaced by his harp player, but that's not going to be known to Saul right away. So he loves David at the beginning, loves David for what he is and the harp that he's able to play. And this sets up chapter 17, where our story comes in big and bold. And we're actually going to read the entire chapter 17 because this story is really important. So follow along as we read 1 Samuel 17, because this the stage has been set for David and Goliath. Listen to it, it says in verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soho, Soko, excuse me, which belongs to Judah and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damim. I'm trying my best there. And Saul and and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why? Have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and will serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah, 
of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take ten cheeses to the commander of their ten thousand, to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep of the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment at the host <clears throat> as the host was going out into the battle shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen the man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard, uh, when he heard, he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to fight, or excuse me, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. Then he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine stead, excuse me, said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come with me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it, and it struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into the forehead, into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his own sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath at the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul, Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now that's a long tale, it's a long story, but it's such a powerful story of God's deliverance of Israel once again through the servant David. This is a very familiar story. It's an all-time classic. And I almost don't have to explain what's happening here because we've heard this story dozens of times. But the Philistines in Israel, it's, they hate each other. And they're locked in conflict at this time. But there's not really a battle happening at this moment because the Philistines have this great warrior named Goliath. He's so big, he's so strong, he's so skilled that he's just standing and taunting the Israelite army. And none of the Israelites are willing to fight Goliath, even amidst his daily threats and tauntings of Israel for 40 straight days. I want you to imagine that. 40 days this man taunts you and your God and your army and you do nothing about it. I'm going to say it this way. If coronavirus was a person, it might look like Goliath. That's how big and strong and scary Goliath was to the Israelites. And during this time, David, who is a shepherd and fluctuates between being with Saul and playing his heart for him and tending his father's sheep, is sent on an errand by his father, Jesse, to go see his three brothers in battle and bring them lunch. So David does just as his father asked him to. And it just so happens that as soon as David arrives, he's right in time for one of Goliath's daily tauntings of Israel. And as per usual, the Israelites are all terrified of Goliath and they're want nothing to do with Goliath. They're all shrinking down in fear and shame. And so David inquires of the Israelite soldiers and asks, what would happen if someone were able to kill Goliath that day? And the way I kind of see this is David is basically saying that the Philistine has no business saying these kinds of things to the Israelites. And therefore, he needs to die. (laughs) He's basically saying, "Um, why has no one killed this guy yet? I've heard it one day, and that's enough for my ears. Why has no one killed this man yet? He is standing here defaming our Lord. 
So David's older brother, Eliab, gets angry at David. David, he's thinking David is acting pridefully. And basically, he tells his younger brother to shut up, David. To which David generally doesn't understand because he's earnest with his inquiries. And so King Saul hears about what David was saying, and he calls for David as harp player. And David immediately volunteers to Saul to go and fight the giant Philistine. You see, David is special. He's already been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. He already has the spirit of, Lord, of the Lord upon him. And David is determined at this point to stand for the name of the Lord no matter the consequences, no matter the cost, without reason being applied to the situation. The thing that cannot happen is for our Lord to be defamed one moment longer. But Saul hears David's plan to go and fight the Philistine and he scoffs. And he tells David it's ridiculous because David's a teenager. He's young. He's small. He's not a warrior. And even beyond being a true giant, Goliath has been a seasoned warrior for years. It's not a fair match. It's not a fair match. And I think at this moment, David is a green, only on the other side. I think David is thinking, you're right. It is unfair to ask Goliath to fight me with the Lord. That is an unfair match. So after David explains to Saul how he used to fight off lions and bears when his sheep were in harm's way, he tells Saul that Goliath is no more than a glorified bear or a glorified lion and that the Lord would deliver Goliath into his hands the same way he delivered bears and lions into David's hand. And so when Saul hears this, he agrees to let David go and fight Goliath. So he straps his best armor on David and take and uh, tells him to go into battle with his great armor, and David takes him off because he's never tested these pieces of armor in battle. Instead, he's going to take a slingshot and five stones because that's what he's practiced using. That's what he's good at using. That's what he's practiced. That's what he's good at. And you want, I want to understand another tool, another lesson here, is that the Lord doesn't need man's tools to do his job, does he? He is better glorified with humble tools and humble weapons. Because who would get the glory that day if David beat the giant with a slingshot? The glory would go to the Lord. So as David gathers his sling and his stones, he heads out to where Goliath is, shouting at the Israelites. And once Goliath sees David, Goliath mocks him and the Israelites for sending this small, pretty boy to fight this massive warrior. And Goliath tells David, that he's going to feed David's flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David returns a few choice words back to Goliath, and he defends his God by telling him that Goliath was going to die that day and that his head was going to be taken from his body and that the Lord was going to be glorified. Did you ever have that kind of confidence in your Lord? Did you ever have that kind of confidence in your God? See, it seems hilarious to David, that Goliath can think he can win. I, I find that so interesting about this tale is that everyone's looking at it the other way, going, David, this is hilarious. There's no way you can beat Goliath. And David's seen it completely the other way, going, there's no way Goliath can beat me with the Lord. He has such confidence in his God. And I want you to carry that in your front pocket for the rest of the lesson because David has confidence, not in himself, but in his God. At this point, Goliath had heard enough, and he approached David in battle. It's time to fight. And here's another interesting point of the tale, as David ran toward the battle line to meet Goliath. 
And after putting a single stone in his, into his sling, he let it fly, and it struck Goliath right in the middle of the forehead. Goliath falls to the ground immediately, and David ran to him, grabbed Goliath's own sword, and cuts Goliath's head off right in front of both armies. <laughs> FYI, I, based on the text, you might be able to say that Goliath's sword is heavier than David is. Goliath's sword is massive, and everyone has seen this happen, probably asking this question, who is this guy? Who is this guy that just took down the giant with a sling and a stone? He picked up his own sword and cut his head off. After that, the Israelites are now full of confidence because their, their enemy, their opponent, is dead. He's been decapitated. And the Israelites now chase down the Philistines who are full of dread after what they just saw. And the Israelites plunder the Philistines' camp and they kill many of the uh, Philistines. And David returns to the Israelite camp holding the giant head of Goliath in his hand. I just find that an awesome part of the tale. And the Lord is glorified in front of many people that day. And I want you to picture David carrying around Goliath's head like it's a keychain or a lanyard. Just carrying around like it's no big deal. The head, the giant head of Goliath. You guys have seen those bumper stickers, right? Where people say, my child is an honor roll student at such and such a school. I think if David would have had a bumper sticker, it would have said that day, my God decapitates giants. And here's proof. He's carrying around the giant head of Goliath. Now that's the tale. That's the story. And we could stop there and find a lot of things to apply. But I told you, I want you to look at this through a New Testament lens, a New Testament parallel. Because there is a wonderful parallel here that we find in the New Testament. You see, if this story was a play acted out by the New Testament church, this is kind of how it would go. David, our hero, would be played by every single Christian who fights in the name and the strength of the Lord. Every single Christian would play the part of David. The giant playing the part of Goliath would be the devil. With all his wiles and his schemes and his trickeries. And those, so those would be the two roles, Christian and the devil. Us versus the devil in a fight to the death. That would be the parallel. But before we get to the battle, even the way David is chosen to be king that we looked at is another interesting parallel. And he told you we're going to look at several parallels here. Because Saul is the one originally chosen to be king of Israel. Not David. Saul is. But Saul disobeyed the clear and direct commandment of the Lord. And so Saul is removed from being king and David profits from it. And that's an interesting parallel because if you notice anything about scripture is we Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were not God's originally chosen people. It was the Israelites. It was the Jews, not the Gentiles, to be a part of God's plan. And the Israelites, just like Saul, were given clear and direct commandments from the Lord. And they were supposed to obey those commandments, just as the Lord had instructed them to. But what did they do? They willfully, with clear understanding, disobeyed the commandments of the Lord over and over, over many generations. After much patience from the Lord. The Lord had given them so much patience to get their act right, to come back to him and to obey his commandments, and they didn't. They refused. So after God's patience eventually runs out on his people, he decides to give his salvation to a new group of people, a people on no one's radar except God's. These people are called Gentiles, non-Jewish, non-Israelite people, people like you and I. 
on no one's radar except God's. And the word Gentile, which I think is quite interesting, literally means not God's people. That's what the word Gentile means. It means not God's people. And there's an interesting parallel because we are an unlikely people to serve God just as David was an unlikely person to be the king of Israel. And yet, the Lord decided to work his plan through the Gentiles and make not his people become his people because God's able to do whatever he wants. God can take the most unlikely person, the most unlikely tool and accomplish his will through it. Now, we don't have time today to read these passages, but I want you, if you have your pen or a pencil, I want you to write down these passages, and I want you to look at them when you get the time. Please read Hosea chapters 1 and 2, Hosea 1 and 2, and I want you to read Romans chapter 11, because in those passages, you're going to find out just how the Lord chose Gentiles to be his people, and how his plan to ultimately choose the Gentiles was to make his Jewish people jealous so that they would one day come back to God for his salvation and his restoration. And so God gets the glory. God gets the glory from David. God gets the glory from the Gentiles because he chose unlikely people to accomplish his mission, accomplish his will. I'll read one verse from Hosea chapter 2, the passage I told you about. Listen to what it says in Hosea chapter 2 verse 23. It says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Isn't that true of every one of us? We were not God's people and now we are God's people and he is our God. You see, we weren't God's first choice. We weren't God's first choice. The Israelites were. But now that we are saved and now that we are God's people, if we have faith in Jesus, we are God's chosen men and women, to accomplish God's great victory in a battle against evil. Which on the surface level, just like David had no business even fighting Goliath, let alone defeating him, we have no business fighting the devil, let alone defeating the devil. Isn't that true? But just like David, we have an ace up our sleeves. The Lord is going to be our strength in this battle, just like he was for David. Once Saul was convinced that David was determined to fight this battle, he gave him the armor that he thought was necessary to give him every advantage to defeat defeat Goliath. But David said that Saul's armor wasn't the proper armor for him because he had never tested it. He never tested it in battle. And didn't we just go through the book of Ephesians chapter 6 that tells us that we need the armor of God? And this armor that we're told that we need is not physical traditional armor that you would take into a physical battle here upon the earth. It's spiritual armor that comes from heaven, comes from God, but it's perfectly suited to defeat the devil and the devil's unseen army. You see, God knows how to defeat giants, not man. God knows how to defeat giants, not man. So if we fight with any other armor than the armor of God, we're going to lose this battle. We're supposed to. But if we listen to God and we gird ourselves with his armor, then we're in the best position imaginable, just like David, to fight the forces of evil. And just as David's opponent, here's another interesting parallel, just like David's opponent, our opponent is much bigger, much stronger, and a much more seasoned warrior than we are. 
The devil is much stronger, much more powerful than any one of us. It's not a fair fight on the surface level, is it? Goliath had big muscles and a massive sword. Our enemy, the devil, has the weapons of sin at his disposal. And we are weak people. We're weak. And and the devil's biggest weapon of all is the consequence of sin. Eternal death. Eternal death is the weapon of the devil that he loves to use more than anything. It's his biggest, baddest weapon. And so this battle that we're fighting against the devil, it's not for the timid. Only those souls who have seen and experienced previous victory from the Lord against evil will be the ones who have the courage to go into this battle. Like David with the bear and the lion, David had already seen God deliver him from really scary things. And I want to ask that of you today. Have you already, up to this point, seen the Lord deliver you from big, scary, evil things? I hope you can confidently say yes, because that's salvation. That's exactly what salvation is. When God says, you don't have to be this way any longer. You don't have to live this way any longer. You don't have to continue to break my commandments or sin against me any longer. Here is my forgiveness. Here is my power. Live differently. If we have seen God deliver us from evil before, we should have the confidence to go back into battle against evil again. And so once David had his proper weaponry, he looked at the giant and he ran to the battle lines because it was time for battle and there was no turning back. You see, to not take this fight against Goliath would have been equal to David standing idly by while the giant continued to defame and blaspheme the name of his Lord. And David couldn't do that. David couldn't sit by idly while the giant continued to defame and blaspheme his Lord. You could say that refusing to fight Goliath would be the same as fighting the Lord. David might have been an accessory to the crime that day of just standing by, standing by, standing out of the way while the giant defames and blasphemes the name of his Lord. And David couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Even if he died, he was going to stand for the name of his Lord. And David was no dummy. He knew that Goliath wouldn't be an easy opponent. But he also knew that if he he was found to be fighting against the Lord, instead of Goliath, David would surely die. So David chose the much lesser of the two fights. He looked at the giant and he looked at God and said, I can only fight one of these and I have to fight somebody. I'm not fighting the Lord. I will take on the giant. I will take on Goliath. Because if I fight the Lord, I will be destroyed. And David loved his Lord. He loved him greatly. So David's one play, his only play, was to turn his direction to the giant, towards Goliath, and charge him into battle. We could go so far as to say this, but while running towards the giant, David was running away from any conflict with the Lord, any opposition to the Lord. He ran away from that and he ran towards the giant. That was very smart, David. Very smart to choose the battle against Goliath than against the Lord of hosts. See, to fight Goliath instead of standing idly by while God was defamed would have been the biggest travesty. Excuse me, to not fight Goliath while he stood idly by would have been the biggest travesty. 
And so here's another parallel. We too mustn't be found to be against the Lord. Isn't that true? We cannot be found to be against the Lord ever again. So we must go head on into this battle against the devil. And as we often find in scripture, when we refuse to fight the Lord and instead are determined to fight evil instead, guess what happens? Just like David, the Lord goes with us into battle. Notice what it says in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord will be with us in battle. And not only that, we must remember the great love God had for David in protecting him against the bears and the lions that sought him harm. And we need to remember the love God had for David by choosing David to be king. And there's another parallel for you and I. We must remember the great love the Lord has for us when he willingly went to the cross to save us from our sins. Does he not love us greatly? And he chose us to be his people for all eternity. You see, our Lord is worthy for us to defend his name, isn't he? Our Lord is worthy for us to defend his name. And I'm going to ask you this. Are you ready to do battle against evil for the sake of honoring the name of your Lord? David was ready. David picked up a sling and he hurled one single rock at Goliath. And it was enough to drop Goliath to the the ground because that stone was sent with the strength of the Lord. David ran up to Goliath. He grabbed his own sword and he cut Goliath's head off. Now, we are not told that we can kill our enemy. We are not told that we can cut the devil's head off. But we have been told, here's another parallel, we have been told from James 4, 7 that we looked at a few weeks ago, that if we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, he will flee from us. He will flee from us. Resist the devil, or say it this way, charge the giant and he will run away from you. You see, David killed Goliath that day, and the Israelite army gained a great victory. And the name of the Lord was greatly glorified. And we have this sort of cool but gory end to the uh, gory but cool detail to the end of our story when it said in verse Samuel 17:54, "And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent." It must have been a wild scene to see David carrying around the massive head of Goliath in his hand. When only moments and days before, Goliath was so big, so strong, so scary to the Israelites, and now David's holding his head. See, our parallel breaks down a little bit because we're not the ones who decapitate the devil, are we? But make no mistake about it, the devil has been decapitated. It was prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that the offspring of Eve, Jesus, who would eventually be the offspring of Eve, would crush the head of the serpent's offspring, death. Listen to what it says in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you deceived Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and And her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, Jesus, our Lord, our captain, was bruised on the cross. He was broken, he was bruised. But he was not destroyed, not permanently. 
because three days later he arose from the grave. And when he did that, although the devil seemed to have gained a great victory when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus rose from the grave, the devil's head was crushed. Or you could say decapitated. The devil was completely nullified from that point on. We know that because we find this prophecy coming true in a really cool passage from 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what it says. In verse 50 it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? The death, excuse me, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us this victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, just like David with Goliath, I want you to imagine your Lord Jesus next to you in battle, holding and carrying around the head of the devil death. Are you afraid of a headless enemy? Are you afraid of what evil can do to you if you have the strength of the almighty Lord next to you? Are you afraid of what your enemies' tools and weapons could do against you if their strongest weapons have been taken away from them? Would you be afraid of a headless, venomless snake? Maybe you would, maybe I would. But don't be taunted by a headless enemy any longer. In fact, I would say it this way, scoff back and charge him into battle. That's what David did. He scoffed at the giant in the power and the strength and the confidence of the Lord and he charged him in battle. Why are we so fearful? Why are we so fearful? Is this coronavirus, excuse me, pandemic bigger than our Lord? It certainly appears to be a giant according to all the news reports we listen to. Should we fear it? I mean, it's, it's basically saying to us, you could be next. You could be next. Hibernate and don't obey anybody but the virus. And I want to mention that we should be listening to our leaders right now. We should be hunkering down to some degree. We should be paying attention to the news reports. But it's a very logical train to follow if we listen to too much media and too many facts that the media is sharing with us that maybe we're without a protector. Maybe we're on our own. Is that true? Are we on our own? Perhaps we know better than that. Perhaps we can recall our Lord protecting us from scary things time and time again. Perhaps we can rise above the fear that is paralyzing most of the known world right now. Perhaps we can win this battle and continue serving the Lord even in the midst of this pandemic. Because we know who's in charge. The virus gets his orders from the Lord. The virus bows in humble submission to the Lord. So maybe 
hopefully we aren't fearing and acting like those without the Lord on their side. And if we are, maybe we don't have the Lord on our side. And if we do have the Lord on our side, if we do have faith in Jesus Christ, we can say, sorry, coronavirus. I get my orders from the Lord of all creation. And he told me not to worry. He told me not to be anxious about anything, including you. So I will not fear. I will not be timid. I will continue to serve my Lord even in the midst of this scary thing going on right now. But the devil's relentless. He's relentless. What about the fears that Satan throws at us each and every day, telling us that we can't possibly be godly? We can't possibly be loved by God. We can't possibly be forgiven. We can't possibly have power over sin. The giant remains taunting us, doesn't he? He taunts us day after day after day. And yes, the devil's head was crushed when our Lord Jesus arose from the grave and defeated death. But that head, that decapitated head, is still spreading vicious lies. Are you going to listen to your insecurities highlighted by the devil or will you listen to the word of God? As your pastor, please listen to the word of God over the media. Take everything they say to the word of God and let the Lord tell you what to do. See, we have a decision to make like David did. We can either turn back from battle and fear. And now I'm not talking about the battle against coronavirus. I'm talking about a much greater battle, a battle against the devil, a battle against evil. We can either turn back from the battle in fear and be found to be against our Lord on the last day, which I'm going to say very confidently, that is not an option. It is not an option to be found to be against the Lord on the last day. But our option number two is to be convinced. To be convinced about these three things, that we can never be found to be against our Lord again. Never. I will never stand against the Lord of hosts. I will never stand idly by while my Lord is defamed and blasphemed any longer. That would be sure death. I will stand for the name of the Lord at all costs. Are you convinced of that? Number two. That the Lord has promised to be our strength in this battle. Because as we learned once again through this tale, the Lord beats giants all the time. And we can trust him and we can have courage in the midst of this battle. And number three, we need to be reminded that evil has no head. If we resist the devil, we are promised that he will flee from us and we will certainly win. Victory is guaranteed. If you fight in the strength of the Lord, if you fight according to the armor he's given you, if you obey his will, you will win this battle. So let's learn from the story of David and Goliath, this classic tale. I'm going to say this today, onward, Christian soldier. To fear is to doubt your great God. Our great God is not worthy of doubt, is he? He's worthy of courage. He's worthy of us trusting and obeying him. To have faith and to charge into battle against evil, against sin, in the strength of the Lord is what our Lord is worthy of. Onward, Christian soldier. Go on the offense today for loving your Lord, for loving your neighbor as yourself. And don't ever be convinced again that any earthly giant is bigger or stronger than your Lord Jesus. You see, the Lord has won much bigger battles than the coronavirus pandemic. And he will defeat the ultimate enemy, the devil, if we trust, if we obey, and if we fight in the strength of the Lord. So let us stand confident today against giants and let us do the will of the Lord 
at all costs. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this message, this classic tale of David and Goliath and what it teaches us about standing against our enemies. And our enemy right now, Father, is the devil and evil. And even though this pandemic is going on right now, Father, we need to remember that we have a higher and bigger enemy uh, than just what's happening right now. And he's trying to utilize this pandemic for evil. But we have the strength of the Almighty Lord on our side. We can utilize this pandemic for good for love. Maybe we have more opportunities now than we never will before or never will again. So let us utilize them. Let us stand with courage. Let us stand against sin and against evil. Let us stand against anyone or anything defaming our Lord and let us go into this battle with confidence. Help us remember that it's not people we fight, but the devil and his unseen army and the powers of sin. Help us to remember that our giant has been decapitated and he has no power any longer except to lie to us. Help us to gain a great victory like David did for your glory and for your sake. Pray for our church right now. Keep us strong. Keep us together. Keep us unified. And most of all, keep us obedient for your sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Hope it's a blessed Sunday.